everyone and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. We come at you from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known as the East Bay Area. We are your hosts tonight, Kano Morgan and Sharon Peterson. Money, finance, forces of nature. One of these things is not like the others. We will explore old and new ways of looking at money. Yes, money appears to be the air we breathe, but does it have to be? On tonight's show, we will explore the history of money. Why does it even exist? Take a look at one way to change how money works and learn how the whole concept of your income might be changed if we make it happen. All that tonight on Full Circle. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and again, welcome to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. I'm Kendall Morgan, and tonight, Sharon and I are exploring how we, as individuals and societies, conceptualize money, and also, how can we do things differently? We'd like to begin with a history lesson. Last week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ralph T. Foster and his editor, Paul J. Meislin, about their book, Fiat Paper Money, The History and Evolution of Our Currency. As a coin dealer and publications attorney in criminal law, respectively, Ralph and Paul offer a unique perspective on the value of our currency. Our conversation was enlightening, to say the least. Let's have a listen. What exactly is fiat paper money? For the purpose of this book, fiat paper money are national issued notes, not local notes. So these are issued by a national entity, a national government. Any additions? So the word fiat, just like in the, um, the fiat looks of uh, UC Berkeley, it just means let it be or let it be done. Fiat money is money that is created simply by decree. Uh, it's not backed by anything of substance or value. And usually through some force of law, it's accepted by uh, the people. It's just as empty as it sounds. It means nothing. It's just, you know, you accept it on faith and, and you hope that it will continue to provide the store of value that you need. That's been the case around the world, uh, particularly in the, you know, since World War II, countries have gotten to this model of completely fiat money. Why do governments make the move to fiat paper currency? As governments run out of money, uh, they start looking at cheaper alternative forms of money and that's really where paper took off, is because you can make as much of it as you want. It doesn't cost you anything. 
um, and you can mandate its value, people will accept it, and suddenly you can have as much funding for your projects, usually, usually wars and, and things of that nature. Um, you can have as much funding as you need. Fiat has developed into a culture. And we live in a culture of fiat. And it's good because it's made for the best life the history has ever witnessed in the world. Money is available for everybody. Would you say that the fiat paper money system was born out of the need for convenience? If you go back and, and look at a lot of the early paper currencies and the way that they came into being, uh, convenience was a very big factor. You had money that was made out of intrinsically valued metal, so people had to carry a lot of metal around. Uh, you have iron money, you have copper money. Uh, in Sweden, they had this money that was so big they needed to carry around these carts to basically go grocery shopping. So everything was valued in these enormous terms. And so what the government there did, it was actually Johan Palmstruck came along and he came up with a proposal to the government to deposit all this copper money and circulate paper. And that, that story has repeated itself throughout history where paper is so much more convenient because it's portable. You know, it's, 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 it has a number of, of, of advantages. What's the danger in this based on your research of society's past? When you hand over the power of money to a government, and, and governments typically take that power, um, but when they start dictating what is and isn't money, they end up assuming um, more control over what you have, what your assets are. Um, with gold and silver, historically, you had something of tangible intrinsic value. Uh, nobody could tell you that today it's worth this, tomorrow it's worth something else. The vulnerability is, is much greater. Can you elaborate on the history of the fiat system here in the United States? One of the biggest acts that ever happened was the Coinage Act of 1965. The Coinage Act of 1965 is when they took the silver away from us. Johnson in the Rose Garden got up and spoke. The silver coins will still be the worth the same as the clad coins. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson or President Johnson. Today I will buy a silver dime for a dollar and I'll sell that dime for a dollar ten cents. Or I'll, I'll buy a thousand silver dimes and sell them for ten percent more than I paid for them. That's an outright market force that governments can't handle. That's the danger, the market force. The psychology changes, the market commands, and we're helpless. I don't care what you believe in, what you think, you're helpless unless you're prepared. You know, we've had it really well in this country uh, for many years. Uh, we haven't really had a major financial collapse at least in terms of the currency, uh, going worthless. So it's very hard to explain the difference between having a money that has tangible value where you having that money in your hand means you own 100% of its value. Possession is ownership uh, in that case. Whereas now with fiat, it begins with fiat money and then it extends to bank-issued money, derivatives, and everything else, you have money that's dependent on something else. It's dependent on a network of entities that accept it, trade in it, and that sort of thing. And then 
you you don't have that tangible value anymore. You're you're looking at uh, numbers on a bank statement. I don't know if people even look at bank statements anymore. Everything's paperless now. So now you're looking at numbers on a screen. You know, you have some numbers and that gives you some reassurance that, oh, gee, I've got X thousands of dollars in this account and so I feel good. That's not quite the same feeling as looking in your hand and seeing something tangible there, knowing that you have that here and now. No one can take it away from you. No one can declare it worthless overnight. Um, and don't, don't think the government wouldn't do that. Um, in uh, World War II, perfect example, the United States actually issued a special overprint for paper money circulating in Hawaii. Because at that time, the government was afraid that the Japanese would overrun the Hawaiian Islands. And wouldn't it be easy to just declare all the notes, all the money that's in existence in Hawaii worthless. Now, mind you, this is not government-owned money. This is money that people have been working for, and it's the, the foundation of their economy. They're using it to buy the things they need, and yet the government, the government looks at it differently. The government considers it their property and feels justified in the ability to declare it worthless overnight. And that's here in the United States. It, it's mind-boggling to think that the U.S. government would do that to its people, even potentially. So just to take it back for a quick minute, in a literary portrait of currency collapse, you reference Remark's novel, The Black Obelisque, in which he paints a grim portrait of what currency collapse looked and felt like during the German inflation crisis of the 1920s. What were some of the consequences of currency collapse then? People died, they committed suicide, hopelessness. Americans don't know what it is worth to, to be thoroughly robbed. We were thoroughly robbed. It just went worthless overnight, the money. We had nothing. It, 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 it's despair. It's, you had no control. You had no, no control. You're ready for anything. You're ready for any godlike figure that appears that can answer the question. It, it's uh, uh, help you somehow. Uh, hopeless, ho very hopeless, very hopeless. You're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. That was the voice of Ralph T. Foster in conversation with myself, Kendall Morgan, and his editor, Paul J. Meislin, about their book, Fiat Paper Money, The History and Evolution of Our Currency. Up next, we delve into virtual worth and what could happen in the event of currency collapse in our digital age. In summing up your thoughts on Remark's work, you write, the world's political, economic, and social institutions now need the fiat currency system to survive. In seven decades, it has embedded itself in the culture of every nation. So what are the dangers of currency collapse now, given the globalized and interwoven nature of our monetary systems? How it'll happen is like Kessler said. Like lightning it struck, like lightning. No one was prepared. You cannot imagine the rapidity with which the whole thing happened. Uh, you could buy nothing with your paper money. This was Kessler, Bolt Hall Law. We don't know. That's the nightmare of it. You just, it it's just so unexpected. It could, historically, you can't rule it out. It's coming. What is your answer for that, Paul? Well, this book contains 
many vignettes of currency collapse. We tell the stories of what happened when currencies went worthless. Um, and for the most part, they went worthless very quickly. But one common thread is that there was always an alternative. There was always good. gold or silver or some other hard money alternative. Now we're in this new, brave new world where we don't know. We don't have a readily available alternative. And the entire world is wrapped up in this fiat system. And it's interdependent on the fiat system. And we watch the numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we don't know where it's going to end. Um, it may just go on and on ad infinitum. But if history is any witness, it's, it's a little scary to think about what could happen. And, and it would be a worldwide financial panic, financial collapse, financial adjustment, retracement, whatever you want to call it, um, I think we will come up with a language for it uh, in the future. Something is coming, but there's really no way to know when too much is too much. The numbers just keep getting bigger. I'm curious now about your thoughts about our unique circumstances now and the increasing transition banks and businesses are making out of using paper money in favor of intangible currency, virtual worth. What is virtual worth? Is it better than paper? Does it matter? I think personally it doesn't matter because ultimately, you know, you can print more paper or you can create the same units digitally or electronically. It is curious that banks and governments are trying to decrease the amount of physical currency and trying to decrease access to physical currency. And it's a little scary when somebody who walks around with any amount of cash is viewed with suspicion. Um, if you go to the bank and you try to deposit uh, a large amount of cash or what they consider a large amount of cash, they start asking, well, where did it come from? Why do you have this? And pretty soon it's this shadow of suspicion on you just because you're interacting with the currency of the country. So part of it, I think, is as banks evolve and government and regulations evolve, they gain greater and greater control just by virtue of greater number of access points, the, the ability and the convenience of using money, it, it's constantly expanding and with, you know, and, and even beyond plastic. Now we're, we're into electronic forms that go to your phone. You know, your, your phone has all of this wonderful information. It's, it's incredibly convenient. You can shop with your phone. You don't need to carry anything else anymore because this phone is, is like this personal device that has access to just about every aspect of your life and it allows you to immediately and, and really without feeling it transfer units to obtain whatever you want. So as we evolve to that world the world of cash becomes less and less normal I think. Yeah. My niece was caught in a hurricane in Florida I said, well, make sure you always keep a couple hundred dollars in small bills in, in Naples. And, and keep a couple hundred dollars in five, tens, and always have a little cash. Uh, I have my credit cards. Then the hurricane hit. They tried to get out. Gas stations. 
cash only, cash only, cash, sorry, cash only. Uh, well, who, someone, someone was mentioning something about an EMP attack. I don't know what that could do. Bringing down the computer system. Uh, uh, who knows? I, I don't, you just don't know where it's going to come from when it comes from, you know. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous world till days. It's uh, always has been a dangerous world. Well, with convenience comes dependence. Yeah, dependence. That's it, dependence. And then with dependence come new vulnerabilities. Yeah. I think that about sums it up. And if it gets real bad, you can always move in with your parents. <laughs> so, um, in that vein, uh, this uh, a literary portrait right here on the very last page where you talk about... Uh, oh, this is very I'm impressed. This yeah, is boy, great. Like this it. is great. I'm almost wondering if you might read it. Would you be interested in doing that? I wear my glasses. <laughs> I'm blind. I'm so sorry to ask you. It's just, it's genius. Usually my keys, I lose something every day around here. The greatest change in our era is the ever greater role banks play in how we interact with fiat currency. The banks have evolved to near total custodianship of the fiat monetary unit. Their interconnectivity of millions of electronic and physical points of sale make universal participation a must. Their policies and regulation must be unquestionably accepted. They invest tremendous resources in maintaining popular belief in their security, predictability, convenience, insights, and expertise. These efforts have paid off in the form of widespread confidence in the current banking and monetary system. Perhaps the most visible expression is that confidence is the obsession of obtaining good credit. In many ways, credit worthiness is more important than having money. Yet, on a psychological level, mankind's hunger for value thrives more so than ever. Instinctively, people expect that as their labor has value, so too their wages. Yet, as they trade that labor for fiat tallies, most are too caught up in daily living to give it any thought. And while the worldwide dependency on banks has never been more absolute, the entire banking system itself remains subject to one critically important premise, that the fiat currency in which all transactions are denominated will maintain value. History predicates that fiat currency never lasts forever. In fact, a time comes when it experiences such a rapid loss of value but confidence is exposed to be a mere illusion. No currency has ever recovered once the terminal decline begins. We are vulnerable to a worldwide disaster of unprecedented proportions. You can always turn money into currency. You can't always turn currency into money. Voila. In a way, the, 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 the German hyperinflation was... I have a good hunch that it was a controlled, rigged inflation created. But if a real inflation goes insane, if a real currency collapse goes insane, it takes your institutions. That's the scary part. If your institutions collapse, if your banks collapse, I mean totally, not just change a little bit, they don't recover. What other institution could come about? Certainly the military will have to move in somehow. You know. <sighs> Institutions go. It's, it's, it's it, the loss of control. The loss of control. Even the Depression wasn't bad compared to what other countries lived through. They didn't experience like the Russians did when their money went worthless real bad. 
and the Russian Revolution. So, but, but the Hawaii's, the world seems so interconnected now. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a story there. And one thing that Ralph is so fond of saying is who better than a coin dealer to write this book? And That's it's what true. Kessler told me. That mm-hmm. came from Fritz. Yeah. <laughs> and it's absolutely true because <laughs> as, a, as a coin dealer, he encounters all kinds of failed currencies. And so you, you, you have boxes and bins of coins and paper money, and all of it's worthless. And, and if you stop and worthless. look at it, you know, you just, you, you just, wait a minute. These are all, you know, people worked for this stuff. People saved this stuff. And yet, here we are, we, we've got boxes of it, and it's, it's just a trinket. It has, it has no meaning anymore. It goes How on can, eBay for $39.99, five pounds of coins. <laughs> How can money suddenly have no meaning? Like, yeah, that, yeah. that is just, it's, it blows your mind when you think about it. And part of that, you know, the reason is because it's all fiat now. If this were a box of silver coins, oh, it's they would still have value. They would still have that intrinsic value. I'd go to the refinery and I'd get, I'd get 10 times. Yeah. So I have one last question. On the very first page of your book, you dedicate your work to the world's worthless paper money. How does this statement speak to the fundamental nature of value? What is value? Did you say value is a perception? Well... No, not really. Value. Go, back, go back to Aristotle. We, we must, we, we, you must render, money must have value that it will render what you want in the future. You want to be able to eat in the year 2028. How am I sure I'm going to be able to eat? Well, historically, the precedent is you want a gold or silver unit, you can convert it. If they're not accepting gold or silver units, you can take it to that silk broker, the, the pawn shop, the coin dealer, and get the current currency for it. And then you can go to a vendor and get what you want. That's why Aristotle said in the Nemachian Ethics, you, money must have value, it must provide for the future. Money is, as it were, yeah. our security. With regard to future exchange, if we want nothing at the present, that it may take place when we do want something. That's what so. they've forgotten. They've forgotten that. Money is a medium of exchange and a store of value. Yeah. And now, as we've seen the evolution, it's become more and more a medium of exchange and not a store of value. Yeah. That's good. You have been listening to Ralph T. Foster and Paul J. Meislin, author and editor of Fiat Paper Money, The History of Our Currency. We'd like to extend a warm thanks to both Ralph and Paul for sharing their time, their thoughts, and their wealth of knowledge with us. Up next, Sharon will be leading us in a discussion with Robert Marsh, founder of Real Progressives. He's live in studio to discuss modern monetary theory. But first, a short music break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. That was none other than our dearly departed Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, with Money Won't Change You. A quick tidbit. Aretha always demanded to be paid in cash because in her time, she routinely saw black singers being underpaid and cheated out of their rightful earnings. As in the song R-E-S-P-E-C-T, sometimes fighting for your propers is fighting for the right to equal pay. Much love and gratitude goes out to her spirit for paving the way for women and folks of color, folks of color all over the world. And yes, we're talking about money tonight, how it's evolved, how the competition for it has come to dominate our collective race for life, and also how it could be different. With us in studio tonight is Robert Marsh. Robert Marsh um, is a member of Real Progressives, an organization that focuses on modern monetary theory, or, among other things, why we can have nice things, theoretically. Welcome, Robert. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Sharon. So, uh, first, could you uh, tell us a little bit about Real Progressives and what they do. Uh, Real Progressives is a group of activists and evangelists that talk about modern monetary theory. It's very important that uh, folks all over the world in, and even in this nation learn about how our money works so that they can then make informed decisions about how to use it. So... Could you please describe modern monetary theory for those of us who've never heard of it? Well, it came on the scene back in 1995 when a man named Warren Mosler wrote a book called Soft Currency. He describes how the federal government spends money and how it taxes money. And that really leads into a circle of life for the U.S. dollar. Congress approves spending, the president signs the bill, and instructions are sent to the Treasury to actually do the spending. Um, dollars are credited to private bank accounts. Like, uh, say, my Social Security, for example, I receive a payment which is direct deposited into my bank account each month. Um, which is coming directly from Congress through the Treasury to my private bank account. Sounds a little like Congress is uh, the actual U.S. Mint. Congress approves all of the money being spent by the U.S. government. And as your previous segment described, the U.S. dollar is fiat currency. It comes into existence simply by decree. Um, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, gives Congress the power and the authority and the monopoly authority to create the dollars that we use. And so when they create a budget, that information goes to the Treasury and dollars are automatically created as uh, said earlier, they're now mostly um, digits on a spreadsheet or numbers in a bank account. So, 
Whenever we think about giving anything to anyone below the 1%, we think of education, Social Security, health care, there's never enough in the budget for it. How can this be? Well, that's where you sort of get into the realm of conspiracies. But the government, from its constitutional powers, has the power and authority to create and spend money. And every time the government spends money, it's spending new money. Um, Every time the government taxes, the federal government taxes, it's deleting that money. And so the fact, um, if everybody knew that the government was creating new money, they would see that there's no excuse for uh, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. You don't have to cut program A in order to afford program B, which is a common uh, bullet point in the narrative going around, in order to spend on the military, we have to first cut Social Security because we need to save that budget that was created. It's not about the needs or the wants of the people anymore. It's about keeping that budget straight. So modern monetary theory tells us two basic things. Congress approves the spending And it is automatically creating new dollars as it spends. Now, if you want to spend on the military, you spend on the military. You want to spend on um, progressive um, proposals and programs, you spend on progressive programs. The way you make that happen is that you have to first fill Congress with progressives. If you fill Congress with the big business money interests that it's currently filled with, the money gets spent on their interests of the 1%, not on the interests of the 99%. I think that's one place where uh, the public really has not uh, done its work. I I don't like blaming the victim because I feel we all are victims, but... uh, We need to vote progressive. We need to cultivate progressive candidates. And once they're elected, we need to keep on their, keep their feet to the fire. And we have not been doing that. It does sound exhausting, but what we're going through now is so much more exhausting. Than, right. than what we would be dealing with if we'd done the work. Right. With uh, 45 in power, we see all the programs being cut that matter to people, their lives, the pain and suffering they go through because of the cuts. And the Democrats are really not helping too much, if at all. Because they go around talking about having to tax rich people before we can provide single payer or free education. Uh, Things that people really need, and they really need it now, especially in the area of single payer. People are suffering and dying and and not being able to get the health care that they need. Uh, 
but they're they're forcing everybody into the narrative that we have to go out and fight rich people in order to get this money to fund these programs. When MMT tells us that Congress has the power and authority to simply create the dollars and spend them where the people want them to be spent. And uh, the people are falling down on the job if they're not all rising up together and demanding that Congress spend for the things that we want. Because they absolutely have the power to do it if they approve it. So basically, we have to learn to make demands. Right. We need to write letters and make calls and always be on the ball to push the agenda forward. Otherwise, we're stuck in this status quo quagmire. Once again, we are speaking with Robert Marsh on Modern Monetary Theory. He's a member of Real Progressives, and we'll link to that organization um, and post uh, when we post our show on the web at kpfaapprentice.org. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM or kpfa.org. So, what do you think is the future of our currency? You know, say, it kind of uh, going back to the last show, no matter how we spend, uh, are we... Is there a way to uh, preserve the health of our fiat money currency well, that, system? That's the good news of MMT. Uh, we are no longer, since 1971, when President Nixon took us off of the gold standard or the Bretton Woods Accord. Um, 1934, we came off the gold standard domestically. And then in 71, we came off the gold standard for foreign exchange. And since that time, we've had a full free-floating currency to use, which Congress creates. The only big limitation on that is inflation. And you don't really hit the barrier of inflation until you've used up all of your resources. As long as there's something to purchase with U.S. dollars, you can create U.S. dollars and purchase them. As long as there's millions of people out of work and unemployed, you can create U.S. dollars to pay their wages and put them to work. And more specifically, for public purpose jobs. Okay, most of the functions of nonprofits in the country, they come to the aid at the end of a disaster, and they provide goods and services to people, poor people, people that can't afford them, things that don't make a profit for a corporation, but the government could come to the aid of these people. It could, uh, through MMT and a federal job guarantee, actually... Um, Provide the people of a nonprofit with a living wage and benefits to continue providing their public surface, uh, public purpose services. It could also take other people that are just strictly unemployed and give them jobs, 
uh, cleaning up parks, being a music teacher at a school. Um, the idea of the federal job guarantee is federal funding and community administered. It would change unemployment offices to employment offices. And anybody that wants a job can walk into one of these employment offices and say, here I am, I need a job today. <laughs> they would hear, okay, we have this, that, and the other thing available. Which one would you like to do? You make your choice, and all of a sudden, you're not totally destitute. You're, you're not without an income. Uh, you have benefits to go see a doctor if you need one. You can get training for a different job if you need the training. But the idea is that the federal government is there and can be used by us, the people, for the things that we need and stay alive economically. So there, our fiat currency is not going to go away. It's not going to lose value. Because the other thing is, taxes provide value to the dollars. In the beginning, the government says, okay, we need to provision ourselves with certain goods and services. We're going to give you a U.S. dollar to go do this job for us. And all of the farmers and fishermen go, well, what do we need that piece of paper for? I'm just as happy fishing or hunting or whatever. And the government says, you got a really good point there. How about we make a tax and you have to pay it with U.S. dollars? Now, all of a sudden, there's this huge demand for U.S. dollars because they know they have to pay their tax or they're going to be penalized severely for it. The government can come and take your stuff away, and it can put you in jail. So, um, the taxes give dollars their value. Other things that taxes do is um, things like FICA taxes. They collect money out of your, your uh, paycheck for Social Security, it's really just for tracking how much you've worked and how much you've made and for how long so that they can plug that information into a formula later and decide how much each month you're going to receive for retirement. Um, there's a Pagovian tax purpose is to control behaviors such as taxing fossil fuels and giving tax breaks to uh, green energy companies. You can, you can modify it or, mo or um, move how people are acting and what they're doing through a tax. And it's also used, and the primary purpose beyond giving dollar its value is to fight inflation because inflation doesn't happen until you have too much money in the economy chasing after too few things to purchase. So taxes pull money out of the economy and delete them. So there's, the, uh, instead of going from having too much money to buy things, you then bring that, that um, total source of money back down even with resources and services. 
So if uh, our government, let's say, we make the big conversion, they start creating money for all the services we actually need. Um, do taxes still play a role in that system? Taxes still play all of the ro roles that I just gave you. But you'll notice that not one of those purposes is to raise money to spend. Not a single one. You can control behavior. You can track individuals' incomes. You give value to the dollar. And you can fight inflation with taxes. But not a single one of these purposes mentions revenue. I'm sure we have an internal revenue service. It's called that. But they're not collecting money for the government to spend. Therefore, it doesn't help to say you're going to collect money from rich people to fund a program because that money that's collected is just jotted down on a spreadsheet and deleted. And even if it were collected and spent, things like uh, Bernie's Medicare for All with a tax provision for the Wall Street hedge funds. Um, it's attacking a behavior that we don't like as a society and using the money collected to pay for. But you, if you follow the logical uh, sequence, once those people avoid or change their behavior and avoid paying those taxes, the revenue uh, stream dries up. If I'm collecting money from you, if I'm collecting money from you to um, put my kid through school, free education, uh, and because you're a, you're a hedge fund manager and you're making millions of dollars, so who cares? I can take enough money away from you to put my kid through college and everybody's happy and you're not hurt all that much. Now, some people would call it a handout, but um, doesn't the Constitution give us a mission statement? Yes, it does. In fact, it's the preamble to the Constitution is the mission statement for the, for the government. Thank you very much. We've been listening to Robert Marsh on Modern Monetary Theory on Full Circle, KPFA 94.1 FM.
thanks for joining us here on Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. You just heard Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters. So, rosy pictures are painted about how wonderfully our economy is performing. Spoiler alert, unpainted reality differs. Real wages continue to decrease as inflation increases. Bay Area housing prices are up in the stratosphere. Yup, we're paying more while making less. On top of that, automation, not immigration, automation is starting to take our jobs. Movie buffs? Seems we're headed for a world that looks a lot like Mad Max or Soylent Green. But are there other alternatives? Well, yes, yes, there are. Tonight, we've looked at one of them, the Federal Job Guarantee, and there's yet another. It comes by many names, of which Guaranteed Basic Income and Universal Basic Income are perhaps the best known. Basically, it means that people receive a certain amount of public funds automatically without having to apply for them. In most pilot programs, it's not a full living wage, but an amount that hopefully helps people get by without their having to resort to heroic measures. Of course, the idea of giving anything to anybody below the 1% is a tough sell. Yet pilot programs do pop up, if only briefly, and when they get canceled... It's not always because they failed. Severely limited pilots in Canada and Finland ended recently in both nations. The programs were terminated before official results were in. Now, GiveDirectly.org plans to give a small daily stipend to adults in certain villages in Kenya. This effort is crowdfunded. Here in California, Oakland startup Accelerator Y Combinator is launching a pilot that would give 3,000 randomly selected people across two states, 1,000 per month till 2022. And uh, on the public front, former President Obama recently floated the idea of basic income. And at least two cities are considering universal basic income pilot programs. Chicago Alderman Mamea Pawar recently introduced a proposal for a pilot program that would give 1,000 Chicagoans 500 per month. The city of Stockton plans to implement a pilot program in the third or fourth quarter of this year. Recently, Cenk Uger interviewed Stockton's mayor, Michael Tubbs, on an episode of The Young Turks. Here are some highlights from that interview. Now joining me, Mayor of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs with a fascinating new experiment that they have over there. Mayor Tubbs, great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, Stockton, California. <laughs> okay, so by the way, just before we get started on your interesting experiment, it says in your bio that you're the youngest elected official in Stockton history and one of the youngest elected in the nation overall. So how old are you? I'm 27 now, but I started on city council when I was 22. and was elected mayor at 26. Wow. Wow, that's change. Okay, and it's not just an age, you brought in change with you. So you've started the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration. It's SEED for short. So what is it? Um, so SEED is the first city-led uh, guaranteed income demonstration. So the idea is that right now we're still in the design phase. At least 100 families will be given $500 a month as a pilot or a demonstration to see what happens when people are given what people call a basic income or universal basic income or a guaranteed income. 
So Stockton is unfortunately way behind the rest of California. And that's has nothing to do with you, obviously. It went bankrupt back in 2012 when you were probably in junior high or something. <laughs> so, and now one in four residents live below the poverty line. So you might have to give that 500 bucks to an awful lot of people. So are you giving it to everybody or is this just an experiment? And if it's an experiment, how many people do you give it to and how do you decide? I don't like the term experiment, so it's more of a, a demonstration. We were able to get a million dollars from the Economic Security Project and another quarter million dollars from the Goldrich Foundation. With that money, we're thinking we'll be able to serve 100 families at least with $500 a month for 18 months. And the idea is not that it's going to solve all the issues, but to really kind of help have a conversation in this country about the current economic conditions that many people live in. The folks I know in Stockton work incredibly hard. Some are migrant field workers, some are Uber drivers, some are teachers, etc. And all seem to be struggling in this economy. So the idea is to show the efficacy of the idea of a basic income with the hope that will spark a larger discussion, not just in the city, but in the state and even the nation around sort of the economic floor people deserve. So you said 100 people for 18 months. When did the program begin? So the program hasn't begun yet. We're in the design phase now. And the idea is that by Q3 or Q4 this year, we'll start the disbursement. And some of the questions on the design are many of the same things you brought up in terms of who will be selected, how are they selected, et cetera. We're also working with a research partners. So we're interviewing some of the finest institutions in the world to come alongside us and help kind of research and document and a storytelling partner as well. So we'll be able to show not just does it work or what do people do with the money, but also be able to tell some stories of resilience and strength and how something as simple as $500 a month can make a world of difference for families. Yeah, it's a conundrum because if you pick exemplary people to give that money to, they might be in poverty, but they're willing to work hard, etc. Then it might be a skewed I know you don't want to call it an experiment, demonstration, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, on the other hand, if you pick people randomly, is that the right way to go? It's a really interesting question. So do you have a point of view on which way you should go on that? Um, I truly think when given the real opportunity, the vast majority of people are rational actors, even in economics. When I think of basic income, I think of people like my mother or the people I grew up with who were brilliant and would find ways that $500 a month could really get to needs that maybe I wouldn't be able to foresee for my purge. Um, so I think it will be as random as possible. And for it to be realistic, there's gonna be some people who probably don't do quote unquote good things with the dollars, but previous studies have shown whether with the Alaska Permanent Fund in Alaska or the Eastern Band in Cherokee Native Americans that more often than not, folks do good things and have good outcomes when given more economic opportunity. And so what's the thesis here? What could they do with the $500 a month that could somehow, I mean, obviously could make their lives better in the short run, but what could they do with it to propel their lives in the long run? Yeah, well, I think it's very case specific. So for some people, it might be $500 is enough for them to enter back into the workforce because they're able to afford childcare. For some people, it might be $500 a month is enough for them to pay for their books at the community college level. For some people, it might be $500 a month is enough for them 
not to have to work two or three jobs, stay home and spend time with their family or be a caregiver. For some people, it might be $500 a month might be enough to deal with rising rents and pay utility bills, which average about $500 a month. For some people, $500 a month might be enough to start a savings. Since one in two Americans don't currently have $400 saved for an emergency. Yeah, yeah, that is a stunning fact. It was mentioned in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren town hall the other night. 46% of Americans cannot survive a $400 bill. They would be bankrupt and have to either take out a loan or not be able to pay it. So it's obviously something that could affect a lot of Americans. So now conservatives will say, yes, but Mayor Tubbs, you'll never get that money back. So it's not an efficient way to spend the money. And if we just give it, it's just gone and it's not an investment. It's not like it's a tax cuts for the rich in their point of view that stimulate the economy and then you you get it back into the economy. That's that's what they will say. So how do you answer that? Yeah, I'm not an economist. I go strictly by common sense. And most people I know who are struggling in the economy are sometimes our biggest consumers. So I see a lot of those $500 being spent on other small businesses within the city helping the city generate more sales tax dollars, et cetera, all. So I think the best investment we can make is in our people, but especially the vast majority of people who are currently struggling in our economic system. And I think an investment in them is probably more important to the long-term viability of our democracy than an investment in those who are already doing incredibly well. You have been listening to an excerpt of a recent interview with Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs by Jen Uger on Young Turks. This is Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM or kpfa.org. Quick update. Mayor Tubbs is expected to release details on the selection process for Stockton's basic income program this Monday, uh, August 20th. We want to extend a warm thank you to all of our guests, Ralph Foster and Paul J. Meislin, author and editor of Fiat Paper Money, The History of Our Currency, and also Robert Marsh from Real Progressives. We also heard from Stockton's mayor, Michael Tubbs. This has been Full Circle, your weekly cultural affairs magazine. We're on every Friday at 7 p.m. Tune in next week as we cover the recent Juneteenth Festival in Oakland. All of our shows can be found at kpfaapprentice.org, along with links to all that we have covered here tonight. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. We have been your hosts this evening, Kendall Morgan and Sharon Peterson. Our thanks to fellow apprentice Steve Grievous, Stevie G on the board, and thanks to our tech assist, Aria, also from Dry Long So Rising. Stay tuned now for La Onda Bajita.